If I've seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. So says Sir Isaac Newton in a correspondence to Robert Hooke on February 5th, 1675. In a previous post of the types of sources, we examined how information in historical research is categorized according to the author and their relation to the events under discussion. Additionally, the post on digital journalism and media literacy explains some of the important reasons for citing sources. One of those reasons was giving credit where credit is due. More poetically, many historians reference the notion of quote-unquote standing on the shoulders of giants. So who are these giants and why are we standing on their shoulders? Let's examine what we really mean by giving other people their due credit. Let's start off by talking about working with secondary sources. If there's one thing about doing historical research, it's that much of the research has already been done for you. In fact, there's a good chance it's currently being worked on. If you examine the sources that I use and compare the information in them with the information in my blog posts, then you'll note that there's nothing really original about the research or the writing that I do for that matter. Most of the sources that I use are secondary sources, admittedly. This is to say that hardworking researchers have already put in the time by digging through the archives and the mountains of primary documents in order to come up with an analysis and evaluation of the materials. When I find a topic that interests me, then I usually start by researching online. Reading the Wikipedia article, yes, I do do that. Digging up some books on the topic at my local library and so on. Nearly all of the sources that I come up with are secondary sources. All that's left for me to do is just to read them and see if I agree or disagree with their analysis and evaluation. Moving on, let's talk about working with primary sources. The preferred alternative to using secondary sources is to locate primary sources. In historical research, primary sources are favored over secondary sources. Now remember that primary sources are anything from that time period that you are studying. These could be news articles, videos, sound recordings, interviews, personal correspondence, journals, etc. Once you've found some primary source materials, you need to analyze and evaluate them. Some primary source materials are easy to locate and simply involve doing an online search or maybe searching through an academic database, provided that you have access to one. At other times, the primary sources may not be readily available and may require you to locate a physical document in an archive. Sadly, even in our modern information age, not everything is readily available online. You can't just punch it into Google or Google Scholar or whatever and boom, it, there it is. No. I mean, it would be awfully nice if we had all the convenience, time, and the money to jump right into the National Archives in Washington, D.C. So that example constitutes the primary barrier to locating primary sources in that there may be expenses involved in both time and money. Now remember that your university professors spent a lot of time and money getting their degrees and, in other words, becoming experts in their fields, and that means they have read mountains of primary and secondary sources. So we've talked about that before, yes, but what about doing original research? Because sometimes the data or the information is not available because it literally doesn't exist. That means going out into the field and doing original research. Interviews will have to be conducted, Experiments need to be done, the results need to be collected, analyzed, evaluated, and so on. 
In short, it creates a new contribution to the field. The process of doing original research is very time-consuming and expensive, hence why many research universities make the big bucks to do it, right? Let's not forget the famous phrase, there are lies, damned lies, and statistics. And this is probably true for bolstering weak arguments with made-up numbers. I always chuckle a little bit when people quote a statistic, and yet, at the same time, they can't provide an accurate source from where they gleaned that astonishing information. And as they say, half of them are probably made up anyway. <laughs> I guess we're just supposed to take them at their word and believe whatever BS they're selling. However, any researcher with any sense of integrity, self-respect, and desire to maintain their credibility will not just make up the data. If you don't have the data, then find a reputable source or go out and get the data yourself. Of course, if the history you're studying is in the distant past, you can't exactly go out and collect interviews from people from that era or conduct experiments with equipment or physical objects that no longer exist. Maybe you know something I don't, but I've yet to meet anyone left alive from ancient times who can confirm, for example, whether or not the Hanging Gardens were actually located in ancient Babylon. In another example, I cannot exactly take measurements of the RMS Titanic because it's two miles beneath the Atlantic Ocean and I just don't have the money to fund an expedition that deep. In cases like that, the researcher is pretty much stuck with trying to locate primary and or decent secondary sources. So this brings us to the classroom and working with source materials in an academic or educational setting. Most non-original research isn't terribly difficult, but finding good sources can be. So when I talk to students as an educator, I tell them that finding reputable sources adds more weight to their arguments. Since they're not doing original research, they don't have to worry about doing the field work and all that because it's already been done. Unless, of course, they want to challenge or confirm the data. Occasionally, I have seen a student voluntarily go above and beyond to really dig into the material, but let's be realistic. Most students, especially at the high school level, they just want a decent grade and that's the end of it. A simple phrase can make a big semantic difference in the writing. Saying, like, XYZ is blank does not carry as much weight as saying, well, according to, you know, blank author, an expert in whatever, their study on XYZ observed that, so on and so forth, and then you insert a citation. See the difference there? So referencing your sources both in text and in a bibliography or with footnotes or endnotes have powerful effects with your writing. So finally, this leaves us with the question, well, if we're standing on the shoulders of giants, who are they? Who are these giants? This discussion speaks more broadly to the notion of the long line of people who have come before you in any field. It could be history, science, art, mathematics, etc. Yet these days we're so heavily focused on instant gratification and convenience that we often forget about the quote-unquote giants. It's easy enough to sit around and fact-check or nitpick other people's work. The peer review process already does that in academia. You put a lot of hard work into coming up with something to be proud of, only for other people to tear it all apart and tell you everything that you did wrong. Social media has arguably made the process even more vapid and accessible to the average person, regardless of whether or not they're in any position to correct your mistakes. Then again, social media isn't exactly a field known for its rigorous scholarship. Social media and scholarship probably don't even belong in the same sentence, for that matter. 
then again, I mean, you could be writing an academic paper on social media, but we're not getting into that. Whatever arguments and counterarguments people have are far more akin to flame wars and ad hominem. So in short, arguments on, on social media don't hold much water. In a way, it's a tug of war between academic and casual or popular knowledge. Let's take history books as an example. I've read books written by esteemed history professors, but which are not very well or just poorly written, or they have unconvincing or weak theses. Yes, even professional historians sometimes produce boring stinkers. Conversely, I've also read history books written by experienced journalists who are excellent writers. They're really great at wordsmithing. They tell great stories, which appeal to the masses, but they're not the best historians in terms of referencing their sources. In short, history is not journalism and vice versa. There is a marked difference between history written for the academic audience and that which is meant for the more popular audience. In other words, academic history versus popular history. Most of the history that you will find on the bestseller list is popular history because it's easy to read and more accessible to the layperson. Same thing with bookstores. Most of the history you see in your local bookstore is popular history. From a more professional and academic perspective, remember that having an advanced degree, like a PhD, is by itself not a sufficient indicator of scholarly quality. Now, this seems kind of weird here, but here's the thing. A person with a doctorate in, say, biology may be a great biologist, but that does not automatically make them a great historian. My point here is that a doctorate does not confer expertise in everything. Now that being said, there is, of course, the argument that the general research skills and scholarly rigor required to obtain an advanced degree broadly translate to many fields. And indeed, earning a doctorate in any field is no simple task. So it's arguable that these people have very well-developed research and analysis skills that are widely applicable. Still, take their academic credentials as but one factor, definitive or not, in the quality of their work. Additionally, the time and effort spent on advancing a field of study is valuable, and it doesn't come without the assistance of far more intelligent people. We all have to put in the hours and pay our dues. Some of us will spend time reading books, and others have the resources to find genuine articles. Still, others can go out and collect the data for themselves. Now, as for me, I am certainly no giant, and what I do, really, in reality here, is mostly just parrot the other sources. Maybe in 10 or 15 years after I've done enough research to justify knowing what I'm talking about, will I have applied my skills enough to qualify as one of those giants. While I'll never likely attain fame or fortune from any of these pursuits, it's important to remember the pioneers who worked hard to blaze the trail for me to follow. I would not have the knowledge of the Pacific War that I have today without the hard work and research done by those historians like David Evans, Mark Peaty, Richard Frank, H.P. Wilmot, Jonathan Parshall, Wayne Hughes, and many others. Their work forms the foundation of my work, and hopefully my work can further provide a small contribution to someone else in the future. Effectively, the proverbial giants are the people who have done the original research, who have analyzed the primary sources, and published the secondary sources. Some have done one, two, or all three of those. They are the people who have crafted the original works of scholarship, of art, of entertainment, and so on. 
Their work is the result of many long hours of reflection and study. It is more than just mindlessly posting and reposting facile garbage on social media. In creating something new, they have significantly advanced and contributed to their field for all to enjoy. So that was my short little spiel on why we stand on the shoulders of giants. They are the people who have come before us and contributed something unique. Thank you.